0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu podcast. What i 'm going to try to do tonight is to actually answer the topic and the question that is implied in the topic. What is the hidden history of capitalism, and how do we think about capitalism and how do we think about capitalism in a way that is slightly well I'll just say unusual and when I say unusual, i'm referring to my own wanderings and my own journeys in trying to understand capitalism, which were pretty difficult so when I was a student, so now many times ago, many years ago, a graduate student, I was I encountered and I can't remember where, but it was probably in Fernand Brodel Centre, a sentence by Brodel that came from his book on capitalism and material life. And the sentence was very intriguing. He basically defined capitalism in a way that I have never encountered before. He said that capitalism consists of three sectors. The first sector, and he actually used the metaphor of a floor, the first floor is the floor which is the largest one, the floor of non-economy. The largest part that capitalism always tries to penetrate, but it never does. It was an interesting, and he called it material life. This is the floor, this is the space of material life. Above it, there is a space of market economy. So this is where all the prices, supply, demand, all of those horizontal relationships exist. And the third floor was inhabited by predators and law of jungle. And he said, this is the home of anti-market, and this is where real capitalism actually really exists. So I was intrigued because two tiers were sort of obvious, anti-market, market, all of that but material life. He seemed to have suggested that within material life, there is something that is almost ungraspable, something that can be investigated, but something that resists or has a power to resist, forces of commodification. And Brodel was very clear on saying that commodification, the advance of capitalism, the advance of market economy, is always a partial process. You cannot commodify everything. It's a dialectical process of negation, contestation. And then the question for me, I think ever since, has become how do we think about material life? How can we actually research material life? And it's not an easy question. Because the first books and the first authors that I looked up were authors who belonged to Marx's tradition. Of course, first of all, Karl Marx himself. And Marx is a brilliant critic of capitalism. Marx is indispensable when we are thinking about labor, about class struggle, about different forms that capitalism recovers or goes into situations of crisis. But Marx is not very helpful when we think about problems of cooperation and material life. Because material life, the way that Brodel presented it, is a space of cooperation. It's a space that somehow escapes the logic of capitalism and the logic of law of value. So Marx, and we can hardly fault Marx for this, because this was not part of his intellectual project. What Marx was trying to do was to understand the organization of commodity production, the nature of commodity production. When he thought of it, he wrote in Das Kapital, and I think it's the anniversary of Das Kapital, so happy anniversary. He was talking about cooperation in the factories, I think. And he was talking about workers as one mode of existence of capital. So thinking about everything that exceeds the logic of capital, overflows the logic of value, was not really part of his project. But it explains the second and third floor pretty well of Brodel's pyramid, of Brodel's tree. And then I looked at other Marxists, and I looked at people who were not necessarily from the Marxist tradition, like Chandler, Schumpeter, people who are really good in explaining what large capitalism is about, especially so-called monopoly capitalism. And they were able to present problems, the way that capitalism was reinvented, the way that capitalism changed over time, especially in terms of technology. And it was very interesting, but again, He did not come to the first floor of material life. And then finally, perhaps the most intriguing Marxist tradition, one that begins with Rosa Luxemburg and then goes on to Paul Sweezy, Baran, uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein, Samir Amin, and many others. uh, These are the people who are thinking about uneven world economy, about relationships within world economy that are uneven, and relationships that are not only commodity production, but relationships that are also part of capitalism because they participate in the capitalist world market. And they were thinking about places like Latin America, Africa, and others, and making a very compelling case that these places are also part of the capitalist civilization. The problem, again, they were not talking about material life. So I had to look at very unusual sources, and I looked at first at a Russian geographer by the name of Pyotr or Peter Kropotkin. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Kropotkin, but he's, uh, where I am from, a socialist Yugoslavia, he was a household name. He was not exactly the most popular thinker because it was a socialist Marxist country, but he was fairly well known, and especially for the book that he wrote in 1902, which was called Mutual Aid, a Factory in uh, Evolution. And basically what he did in this book was to say that It is really not competition, it is not struggle that defines evolution, it is something else. It is this intriguing notion of mutual aid, which Kropotkin himself borrowed from people in Japan Lav Meshnikov, a natural scientist, a samurai, a really colorful person, also a revolutionary anarchist, who in conversation with people who were doing this sort of work in uh, mostly related to ichthyology and zoology, natural sciences in Japan, brought it to Russia, and in Russia a group of zoologists started thinking about mutual aid, and Kropotkin said, well, I believe that what the state scientists did was to impose, to stain nature with gladiators' blood. Where Darwin and his bulldogs, he said, see only competition and struggle, I see a great deal of mutual aid and solidarity. And it was a really interesting thing to read. So one of this, and I'm going to share this with you, this is part of mutual aid, If we ask nature who are the fittest, those who are continually at war with each other, or those who support one another, we at once see that those animals which require habits of mutual aid are undoubtedly the fittest. They have more chances to survive, and they attain, in their respective classes, the highest development of intelligence and bodily organization. Now, the great innovation of Kropotkin was not to come up or to invent the concept of mutual aid. His contribution was to translate the concept into human history and to reinterpret the history of humanity as a history between mutual aid or institutions of mutual aid and institutions of possessive individualism. So, from the very beginning, he said, from clans, from protostates, states, states, from all forms of social formations, you had impositions, social impositions, and organization being imposed from above onto the society. But at the same time, you had organizations from below being reorganized around the principles of mutual aid. And he followed it further, and he said, well, capitalism and the state, when you think about it, they are really nothing but a departure from a natural tendency of humanity towards mutual aid. Which is not solidarity, it's something much more serious, he said, it's much more developed than solidarity itself. Mutual aid, he said, is something that is the fundamental tenet of human achievement, of every human, a significant human achievement, even those, and maybe especially those, that are contributed to capitalism. There would be no society, he said, without relationships of mutual aid. And he went on to follow this instinct, and he said, well, if states and capitalism have developed by crushing cooperative solidarities, as they did, they were not entirely successful. So he identified a whole group, today we would call them autonomous groups, that existed almost and I'm emphasizing almost, independently from the state. And he called those groups vibrant instances. These vibrant instances, he wrote, are blocks of, stateless blocks, of a future society. And I was completely transfixed, because I had something to work with. I had this idea and notion, not only of mutual aid, but of vibrant interstices, in which people, so spatially organized situations, in which people live somewhat autonomously. Lives that are not delinked, but in any case, not completely dominated by the logic of the state and the logic of the market. And it was remarkable. So I followed him further and I followed the reception that his idea, concept of mutual aid had in the conversations of the day in the early 20th century. And what mutual aid suggested was that we should not think about capitalism or communism or individualism as total systems. Mutual aid suggests that really there is no such thing as a total system every system is compromised by the existence of autonomous enclaves where people have somewhat independent relationship to their work, to their labor, and to their life and leisure. And he said, we are making a mistake. We are always interpreting past or present in terms of the past. We need to think differently. We need to think about a society using different ideas of the future we are thinking about a society and a movement of history moving from one total block to another from slavery to feudalism from feudalism to capitalism from capitalism to communism no let's not think in these total conceptual blocks if we don't do that we are actually able to see something quite remarkable and that is that communism which we call mutual aid is already here and Which was, again, another remarkable insight. Wherever you look, and he said, socialist aspirations are already here with us. Socialism, communism, is imminent in the society. And that, to me, was something that led me to another thinker who was, at the same time, developing a very similar concept, completely as far as I know at least, uh, unrelated to Kropotkin. And that is the founder and father of French anthropology, Marcel Mauss. Now, I assume that most of you have heard about the book, The Gift. And it was written in 1925. I consider it to be the most successful refutation of the ideas behind economistic theory or economism. But it was written because Marcel Mauss, this very unusual man, amateur boxer, uh, polyglot, somebody who spoke 12 languages, somebody who always had a book to write. He had five books out of which I don't think he finished a single one, but wrote a string of innovative essays that created social theories. And single-handedly almost created French anthropology. He was the nephew of Durkheim, founder of the sociology as a discipline. And he was a member of the chosen member of the group of French intellectuals who were in those days defining disciplines of social science that we will have today. He was assigned to study religion. But he ended up studying something else, which were gift economies. And because he was also a revolutionary socialist of cooperatives, cooperativist persuasion, he was interested in what Bolsheviks were doing 100 years ago, happy another anniversary of the Russian Revolution, and he decided that as excited he is to see a socialist experiment realized in the whole country, he is also completely terrified by what he saw as cynicism of the Bolsheviks, and he said this is really only a rational calculus of the market slightly transposed onto the society. It was an interesting critique in those period of the Bolshevik experiment. And then when he saw that in 1921 the new economic policy of Lenin did not really work and the early attempts to abolish commerce did not work, Marcel Mosk decided to write a book that's going to explain, gather, organize his ethnographic research and actually try to see what market really is. And he wrote The Gift, which is a complete refutation of most of the things that even today we take for granted. The idea that we exist in order to accumulate. The idea that everybody is a homo economicus, who is only accumulating things for pleasure, for utility. That, he said, most never really existed. Identity society, including the Western society. And he said that the whole idea that at the beginning of history was something that we call barter, which then somehow developed into something that we called money as a universal medium of exchange. And then in the further technologies of exchange, including banks and markets, is a completely fictitious history. We don't see barter at the beginning. We see amalgam of all sorts of societies that could be called gift economies. And in these economies, he said, competition does exist. But people compete. Not how to accumulate, but how to actually outbid one another by destroying the wealth that they had. And he put his enormous ethnographic experience, he studied uh, Native Americans and he discovered potlatch, one experience with people actually destroying wealth on purpose. And that was a remarkable insight of Marcel Moss that actually what we are living right now is a sort of a confused amalgam of contradictory tendencies in which every social possibility is always possible. Sure, individualism exists, but so does communism. Uh, Capitalism exists, but so does relationship of gift and mutual aid. And in the fact that relationships of communism, he used the word, and relationships of mutual aid and relationships of the gift exist, means that we can organize society completely around different institutions that will promote very different values. And he said that the gift is a hidden face of modernity, that capitalism, and this is one of the more interesting insights of Mauss, capitalism is really denying the fact that it rests on systems of exchange that violate the very definition of capitalism. Sharing, he said, is everywhere. If you think about your paycheck, one-third monthly or yearly paycheck, one-third goes to your family. The other third goes to your state, and the last third will be spent on all sorts of consumerist stuff that you are probably going to share with somebody. And yet, we live in a civilization that is almost completely dedicated to actually negating the very core of its existence. So he said, very much like Kropotkin, there could be without the gift, there is no society. Without mutual aid, as Kropotkin said, there is no society. And it seemed to me that what both Christian theologians, professionally trained economists in, say, USF, and social theorists had in common, was a sort of a conspiracy to deny the possibility of generosity and kindness in human interactions. Whenever I would go, at least in the 90s, to a conference, you had people in social theory who were saying that gift is impossible. Even the best of them, Pierre Bourdieu, gift is impossible. Behind it, there is some selfish calculation. And what we really need to do is to understand the nature of that selfish strategy. If you give and experience pleasure, it must be that this is not really giving. And Marcel Moss wrote exactly against this perverse logic by saying that giving and self-interest are not opposed. And he said self-interest actually can't even be translated in most of world's languages. The whole idea of the traditional gift was really to further both mutual interest, your own personal interest, and concern for the other. So Marcel Moss ended up saying something that many people thought was very naive which is communism, if you look carefully, is everywhere. But I think that he was right. And I think that Kropotkin was saying, at the same time, saying a very similar thing. And Kropotkin, in his letters to young scholars, wrote a fascinating sentence. He said, scholars ought to restore the real proportion between conflict and union." They are bound to enter a minute analysis of the thousands of facts and faint indications accidentally preserved in the relics of the past, to interpret them with the aid of contemporary ethnology, and after having heard so much about what used to divide men, to reconstruct stone by stone the institutions which used to unite them. What both Marcel Moss and Pyotr Kropotkin had in common was the fact that they were not so interested in why the economic philosophy, economism, became a sort of a common sense of capitalist civilization. They were interested in the extent to which people were able to say, to find that logic, repugnant. If Marx was a brilliant theorist of capitalist development, Kropotkin and Morse were less interested in following his analysis and more interested in actually understanding what stands outside of capitalism, what kind of relationships were standing outside of capitalism, and how can one actually create institutions that would be relatively independent? And that's the story of Moss and Kropotkin briefly. and Moss and Kropotkin, in that sense helped me understand and somewhat concretize this notion of vibrant interstices and also rethink the notion of mutual aid and communism, not as proprietarian notions, not as something that rests on property, on owning property, but as moral principles. And if you think about them as moral principles, you have a completely different vista, completely different perspective in terms of social possibilities. So, vibrant interstices was an interesting idea, but how on earth does one research those? And this is how I discovered anarchist anthropology, which probably properly begins with a man whose name is Pierre Claster, and he is another famous French anthropologist who, somewhat bored with vulgar Marxism of his time, 1970s, wrote a book called Society Against the State. In that book, he introduced a very interesting proposition, He said, if the history of the people with history is a history of class struggle, history of the people without history is a history of their struggle against the state. And the whole society, and he was studying indigenous society in South America, Paraguay, can be understood only as a conflict between society and the state transformed through a relationship that he called the non-coercive politics or non-coercive power in which people who were called savages were actually creating institutions strategically in order to prevent state and state-like relationships from developing within their own uh, societies so That was a fascinating insight that led Deleuze and Guattari and many French philosophers to develop their own theories. But it helped me also understand that there is an element of strategy, of refusal, of the presence of the state within these societies. However, one thing, for me at least, was left unanswered. How on earth did these people know that the state is a bad thing? Why would they organize against something that they had no experience with? And the answer came with another book, James Scott, probably the most celebrated American anthropologist, who wrote a book called *The Zomia, actually the book's name full name is The Anarchist History of Southeastern Asia or The Art of Not Being Governed. Excellent book, in which he proposed that most of the history people actually try to live without a state. It's not an anomaly, it's a human condition. If you look at the history of Asia, Zomia, and Zomia is this huge mountainous range in Southeastern Asia, many millions of people live there, you see what he called a non-state space. You see non-state geographies. And you see a history of people who are trying to escape and the history he said cluster is right he said but the reason why people had the experience had the knowledge to resist the state and to organize against state appearing in their midst was because they actually had the experience of the state living in the state finally deciding to escape from the state and to create non-state spaces in inaccessible Uh, areas, he said that civilization and state, he thought about civilization and state as one and the same, run out of breath at some point when people go up to the mountains. And he said there is a series of structural characteristics of escape. First of one, first of which, would be geography. You escape from the state, like the Maroons, say, in Jamaica, and you go either to the swamp or you go to the mountain, somewhere inaccessible. Second escape structure for him was a decentralized social structure that allows for dispersal. Third one was negation of an identity. There was no common ethnic identity. Then, a very provocative idea, uh, orality, he says, or non-literacy. People who lived far away from the state, refugees from the state, exiles. Would actually refuse to have history in terms of written history, because that's one of the ways to prevent capture by the state. And he also included millenarian revolts as another escape structure, and agriculture of escape. Basically, he said, if people are running away, they're going to choose agricultural crop that's going to help them escape and that's going to help them allow them to disperse. So, for example, he said, in Southeastern Asia, that was maize. Here, it is cassava. So, people choose different ways, different strategic responses in order to prevent capture, being statified. But he ended this beautiful book on a very confusing note. He said, well, now, that was before. What we have now, we don't have these small states anymore. Now we have large states. And the whole world is transforming into this large, global, administered space. And he made explicit uh, uh, reference to the movement of the enclosures. And he said, we are moving to a total enclosure. There is no space to flee, no space to escape anymore. Mm -hmm. The age of non-state people, non-state spaces is over. They were brought to the heel of the civilization represented by the state. And I said, how on earth such a beautiful book can have such a terribly pessimistic ending? So I looked elsewhere, and I discovered in South America, in uh, actually in Uruguay, there was a theorist, sociologist, journalist by the name of Raúl Zibechi. He wrote two books published here by AK Press, Dispersing Power is probably a better known one. The other is called Territories in Resistance, in which he actually spoke about contemporary non-state spaces. He said, yes, such a thing exists. Come here to Latin America and you will see a flight of capital, followed by the flight of people from the capitalist relationships. You will see a new urban formations, houses that are completely economic enterprises that are almost, no almost, in his words, completely independent from the rhythms of state, capitalism, and they are outside of capitalist civilization. And if you go to El Alto, he said, in Bolivia, you will see 70% of people involved in informal economy, not having almost any relationship with the world of formal labor. That was some fascinating statistics. And he went on to explore this in very compelling and convincing detail. But there were some things that were still, for me at least, missing in both Scott and Zebecki. One thing that I think both of them missed, but especially Scott, was the idea of historical capitalism. You cannot do away with Marx. Marcel Moss and Peter Kropotkin were trying to understand society from a perspective of an institution that does not, or institutions plural, contribute To the reproduction of hierarchy, power and domination. What Marx was trying to do was to remind us that every institution does participate in the reproduction of a totality that is hierarchical, that is in some way related to exploitation and domination. If you are going to be a serious social scientist who is thinking about these things somewhat seriously, you have to do both of those things. You have to think how some situations, people, spaces escape the logic of capital. And you have to see how some of them, most of them, don't. And refusing to even acknowledge the existence of capitalism, even even a single footnote, I think made Scott's analysis in this beautiful book uh, very problematic. In his analysis of the state, He's talking about a state that is small and then it becomes bigger. And he completely misses the whole transformation of the state system and formation of the interstate system in 16th and 17th century, which can be understood only in relationship to the emerging capitalist civilization. And if you really think about the enclosure, if you think about history without capitalism, then of course you're going to arrive at enclosure and the idea that there can be no more non-state spaces. So. Lacking that historical perspective but lacking more than anything else any notion or conception of capitalism is what made that book or that line of analysis, I think, very insufficient. And Zubecki made a different mistake. He wrote about political economy in great detail. He wrote about capitalism in complete detail. But his mistake was to see this as a completely new thing. He said, what we have now is unprecedented. We have a new relationship between people and spaces. And it's a problem, because it's not new. If you think about the history of capitalism, people were escaping capitalism from the very beginning. From the 16th century onwards, people actually escaping, refusing, creating all sorts of situations that were relatively autonomous from capitalism, creating vibrant instances that Kropotkin was talking about, where relationships of gift economy that Marcel Mauss was describing were prevalent. Now, we are thinking about pirates, not the nicest people, but still people who organize a ship in a particular way. that actually can be called democratic. We are talking about Maroons, not always the nicest of people, but again, people who are able to organize or self-organize Say spaces that are at the very edges of capitalism. We are talking about the Cossacks, and this was one of the cases that I researched a lot, People who started as a non-state people, refugees from the state, and who made a deal with the Russian state to protect the borders of Russia, unwillingly, unwittingly contributing to the formation of Russian state and eventually falling prey to the Russia, capitalist Russia, in 17th and 18th century. So we are talking about many, many commentary in the United States, many interesting examples and many interesting groups of people always escaping capitalism from the very beginning. But in order to understand this, in order to have a good grasp of this, we need to have some kind of theoretical grasp of capitalism. And we cannot wish it away. And that idea of capitalism is the idea of capitalism that is historical. Capitalism as a system, as a historical system. And this is where I got another help, another push from Fernand Brodel, who writes and he says something like, and it was an interesting idea, I think I found it in a footnote. There are always black holes in the world economy. And these black holes are these spaces that are almost partially, almost completely outside of commercial exchange, they're independent. There are black holes in capitalist accumulation. They are almost always in inaccessible places. Their existence, he said, is fleeting. And people, researchers, who would like to study these black holes in the world economy, are bound to be disappointed because there's not enough evidence. It's like an underwater expedition. And I was, I like swimming, it was a nice challenge to actually connect this whole conversation about non-state spaces to this idea of black holes in world economy. That allowed me to make a bridge between non-state spaces that were analyzed outside or without any relationship to capitalism and black holes that are somehow outside, at least partially so, from the processes of capitalism and world economy. And it was immensely helpful. And another element in that conceptual map, of course, was the idea of mutual aid and the gift. So I thought the other part of that sentence was also interesting. He said, black holes in the world economy, and then he said, black holes in the world's time. And then I started thinking about capitalism and came closer to what might be called hidden history of capitalism by actually saying, OK, We have to understand economy in a broader sense. We have to use mutual aid and relationships of mutual aid in order to rethink what economy means. Because when Kropotkin was writing about mutual aid, he was saying that mutual aid is not only a key for survival, it's also a key for pleasurable life. It is about, he said, production of community. And that was another intriguing thing. So I came to think of economy in a slightly different way than most economists and even most Marxists, with the exception of feminist Marxists, think about economy. And I think that one of the greatest misfortunes that we're allowed to be convinced by the people who teach in business schools and economic departments is this idea that... Economy is about production and production is about commodities, services, material objects. And I think that what we need to do is to rethink using mutual aid, rethink this notion and say that economy is actually something much broader. Economy is a production of people, human communities, nature, intersubjective relations, collective joy, In a sense, we can even say that development, what economists and sociologists call development, could be actually described as the replacement of collective joy with commodity production. Economy should be then redefined and brought back to where it was before the advent of capitalism. That whole notion of value, and that's where anthropologist David Graeber was very useful to my own project, should be reconsidered. And we should think about that whenever we move to the edges of capitalism, the center of economy is moving from the production of commodities to the production of communities, communal relations, uh, and collective joy. And to me, that idea of economy and that idea of thinking about economy was tremendously liberating. And... (coughs) Of course, this wasn't anything that I came up with on my own. Uh, I definitely wasn't the first one to stumble upon it, so to speak. I discovered another anthropologist, whose name was Victor Terry Turner, who wrote that to understand economy in its widest sense, one would do better to start from Marx and Engels' programmatic anthropological definition of production in their German ideology, in which production is said to comprehend not means of subsistence, but of human beings and families, social relations of cooperation and new needs as well. Commodity production narrows the range of activities that count as productive to those that form part of the economy that produce exchange value, while separating the other forms of productive activity from production and a fortiori from those considered to be producers. Also, a sociologist by the name of Dennis O'Hearn wrote, Clearly, economy, in its broader definition, involves time, effort, and commitment. Effort is connected to commitment, since intensity, creativity, attention to detail, and quality are all impacted by alienation and force, as well as by positive forces like solidarity, empathy, and hope. When one brings time into the equation, an interesting result emerges. Workers struggle to reduce the working day when effort is regulated by a boss and it's tied to wages, yet effort is intensified and time lengthened when it is regulated by interest, creativity and solidarity. Development has a vast impact on the allocation of time during the day, combined with the degree to which work and life are separated, which goes to the heart of how we define the economy under capitalism, and it fundamentally changes not just how we spend our working day, but how we spend our whole day. And interestingly, Kropotkin was already thinking about this. Kropotkin in mutual aid has one one part that is one sentence that I always found completely fascinating and that most people usually avoided to comment on, which is the one when he says that there is no real or there should be, and in the natural world there isn't, a distinction between work and play. And he writes, We know at the present time that all animals, beginning with the ants, going on to the birds, and ending with the highest mammals, are fond of plays, wrestling, running after each other, trying to capture each other, teasing each other, and so on. And while many plays are, so to speak, a school for the proper behavior of the young to mature life, there are others which, apart from their utilitarian purposes, are together with dancing and singing, mere manifestations of an excess of forces the joy of life, and the desire to communicate in some way or another with other individuals of the same or for other species, in short, a manifestation of sociability proper, which is a distinctive feature of all the animal world, humans included. So we have a playful cooperation and pleasure, we have the idea of production of life and joy. And we have a completely, completely different definition of what economy, much broader of what economy should be. One that involves, as Kropotkin said, dancing and singing. And most of you have probably heard or read of Barbara Ehrenreich, American sociologist, who complained in her book on dancing, beautiful book on dancing and joy and festivals that capitalism launched global campaign against festivities and ecstatic rituals. At some point, she says, in town after town, throughout the northern Christian world, the music stops. Carnival costumes are put away or sold. Dramas that once engaged the town's entire population are canceled. Festive rituals are forgotten and preserved only in tame and truncated form. The ecstatic possibility which had first been driven from the sacred precincts of the church, was not hered, was now herried from the streets and public squares. In other words, festivals were forbidden. Festivals were privatized. Communal joy was replaced by commodity production. And that, I think, is how we need to think about economy. We need to redefine economy to include production of people and human relationships. And we need to think about work in a way that includes dancing, the effort of dancing. Because that's the work that actually counts as a work that produces communities. And we need to think about this in a way that would also connect to the insight of Fernand Brodel, who was speaking about the world time and world capitalism. So we need to make the understanding of economy broader, but we also needed to make it more historical. And when he was writing about world time, He was using a very clunky term, he said it's a contradictory totality of temporal and spatial scales that comprise the world economy. What he was saying is basically how world economy, how capitalist civilization impacts everybody who is involved in its functioning and how capitalist civilization does this across time and through time. he wrote further, and this was later developed by Emmanuel Wallerstein, Giovanni Arrighi, and many other people. He wrote about both capitalism, capitalist civilization, that proceeds through something that they called incorporation. The whole idea, they wrote, of capitalist civilization is to pose the law of value and to impose the law of value in which everything becomes valuable according to the standards of capitalism. And you have to remember, capitalism has a really weird logic of value. What is valued in capitalism is only something that is waged, only the labor that is waged. Everything else, the labor of women, the labor of nature, the labor of life itself, is undervalued and transformed in something that Raj Patel calls negative value. In other words, capitalism is, in my opinion, and again, not a very original one, a completely perverse system, morbid system. A system that exists in ways that are absolutely suicidal and homicidal. The way for us to actually get out is to actually go back to this Mosian insight that there are different possibilities. They're always possible. They're always present. They're always here in the society. There is another sociologist whom I like, whose name is Boaventura de Sousa Santos. He's sort of a post-colonial, decolonial theorist. And he writes following, probably without knowing Kropotkin, that what we need is to recover the waste of experience. And we need, he says, two sociologies sociology of emergencies and sociology of absences. Would be us trying to figure out everything that was made absent, that was made invisible, that was made backward, that was labeled, discounted, as pushed away, as ignorant. And then we need to have sociology of emergencies in which we are going to use, recover all of those experiences in order to create concrete utopian futures. And we need, both of these Sociologies are linked because sociology of absences produces this raw material of examples that have been made absent in the course of the development of capitalism, capitalist civilization, and sociology of emergencies actually allows us to define and think about possible alternatives to capitalism and capitalist civilization. And I think this is really the task before us, ahead of us. And the whole idea of non-state space, or vibrant instances, I think is very useful, if you think about it as a set of practices, as something that is not completely dominated by capital and law of value. I came... I ended up writing a book about this, and the book, in this book, which was called Living at the Edges of Capitalism, I gave a new name, it's too many concepts, but I thought this one is useful, to this experience of spatially organizing outside or at the margins of capitalism, and that's the term exilic space, and I said that exilic spaces are those spaces of concentrated mutual aid. In which people are organizing relatively autonomously from the processes of state regulation and capitalist valorization. And these spaces exist everywhere, and they exist today. And if you go to James Scott, he is thinking about them in Zambia, in Southeast Asia, in other examples, almost exclusively, oh no, completely exclusively, as geographic or territorial spaces. For me, I think that these spaces are also structural. And once you have capitalism, once both capitalism enters the picture, you don't have a non-state space anymore because you don't have a relationship between something that's the state and something that's a negation of the state, something that's a non-state space. You have a relationship between totality of the system of domination that I would call historical capitalism, a network of economic power, of political power, of social relations of domination, of particular way of organizing nature, organized around the unity of global and local. And you have totality of hierarchical relations. And outside of it, you have exilic spaces. Because what is confronted, what is being confronted, is the entirety of capitalist civilization, and not just the state. The state is only one part of it. So when people escape, they can also escape structurally. We might be escaping right now. Space should not be understood as a fixed category. Space is a social dynamic product. Space is a relationship. And when we talk about exilic spaces, we're talking about exilic practices. And then I discovered, or uh, offered, another concept, which helped me think through the history of capitalism in a more systematic way. And that's the idea of infrapolitics of capitalist world economy or capitalist civilization. And I said that infrapolitics is a process of systemic breaking away from the logic of state and capitalism by forming these exilic spaces. It's a project of production and circulation of exilic spaces and practices that was always here with us from the inception of capitalism onwards. The reason why most sociologists, most economists, most anthropologists who are thinking about capitalism never saw these spaces is because that for the most part of their lives these spaces that are called exilic are actually part of what Jim Scott calls hidden transcript of world economy. They are mostly invisible. However, in some moments, and this is where world time as a concept becomes very useful, in times of cyclical downturns, restructuring of economic systems, they become part of the public transcript and they are transformed. So if you think about the most interesting example, because it's so much it's written about, and almost everybody in this room, I'm sure, know about this. If you think about the Zapatistas in southern Mexico, you have an exilic space you have a relatively autonomous space, self-organized, which is transformed into an obstacle of capital accumulation in Mexico and that part of the world, in relation to a trade agreement called NAFTA, 1994, when the Zapatista actually came into existence. So the interesting thing about this is for me to think about exilic spaces as products of specific form of incorporation into capitalist world economy. As capitalism invades a particular territory, it does the first task, the first thing that capitalism has to do is to eliminate any alternative. And then incorporation into capitalist world economy can actually be redefined, not only as an inclusion of territories in worldwide system of labor, but also as a destruction of interstates, or at least incorporation of interstate spaces. So the state system in capitalism is struggle against non-state spaces. And history of capitalism can also be thought of as a history of struggle against external or autonomous economies that exist outside of capitalism. The trick is that the process of incorporation into capitalism, because capitalism always expands, is always incomplete means that the process of incorporation into capitalism is always frustrated, gradual, uh, incomplete, and ultimately reversible. And this is our greatest hope, if we were to think about a world outside of capitalism. I do not believe that we can actually now speak about territories, I mentioned the Zapatistas or many others, that are completely outside of capitalism. I think that capitalism is a unitary system i think that capitalism is incomplete which means that capitalism doesn't leave uh, that it leaves space for the outside that is inside we are talking about spaces that are at the same time intersystemic and extra state they're outside of the states like the zapatistas in chiapas but they're very much part of the system of capitalism however not completely And these contradictions, this contradictory location of these spaces is something that I think we need to start researching more seriously. And I think one of the things that serious social science should do is place back, like Kropotkin did, at the center of its research agenda, the conflict between institutions of mutual aid and institutions of uh, competitive, possessive individualism. But really, when you think about Kropotkin and his double movement in terms of understanding economy, he was talking about you can apply to what is happening today. You have free market theories, you have all sorts of neoliberal, we call them today, impositions, and you have processes, structures, organized and reorganized from below. And that always brings me to a conversation that Kropotkin had in 1903 with students in Switzerland, when he said we are now living in the time where the idea, the dogma, he said, of competitive, possessive individualism is the dogma of the day, it's the religion of the day. To doubt its efficacy and to speak about mutual aid is to be a dangerous utopian. And to be utopian, he said, is to be out of time and out of place. And in a certain extent, especially now with Trump and with everything that is happening to all of us, we are out of time and out of place. And there is a particular urgency to try to understand the possibilities and alternatives that Marcel Mons argued are always possible to transform those institutions into dominant institutions and to organize in such a way, I would say, revolutionary way, so we can overthrow capitalism and create a just, a more noble, more dignified, more pleasurable society. So, thank you and You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.